Welcome to episode 155 of the Daniel Yoris podcast with today's guest, Dr. Carrie Dominic. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Joined here today by Dr. Carrie Dominic. Carrie, thank you so much for being here. We're going to have a conversation about something that is brand new on the podcast, which I mean, there's hundreds and thousands, maybe millions of topics to discuss in the realm of health and fitness and and wellness. And sometimes you get in the bubble of thinking like, hey, it's, you know, we're 150 plus episodes in now. We've kind of, we've kind of done it all, but apparently we haven't. So we're going to talk about something new today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to your um, audience about what I do. Of course. Well, can you go ahead and give us a quick introduction of who you are and what it is that you do? Yes. So I'm Carrie. I'm a physical therapist, but I specialize in treating pelvic floor. Um, so what that means is I help people a lot with like bowel, bladder issues, pelvic pain. Um, so I treat a lot of women. I treat men too, um, but mostly women. And so I'm excited to talk to you about how, what that means in the context of fitness. Absolutely. So right off the bat, again, <laughs> keep in mind, I know very little about this other than the basics of anatomy and physiology that just, you know, go across all of training. But based on what you just said there, bladder, bowel, these things like men and women both have bladders and bowels and we all, you know, use these things and go to the bathroom and all this stuff. Why is pelvic floor therapy so much more prevalent or needed or maybe maybe seeked out? Is seeked a word? <laughs> seeked it's not it's not sucked. <laughs> seeked so, out? Sought out. Sought out. There you go. <laughs> sought out by by women. Yeah. Um, you're right. Like we both have bladders and bowels and we essentially have the same pelvic floor muscles, but the anatomy is a little different. Um, is there visuals to this or this is just audio? Yeah, no, it'll be visual. I mean, most people listen audio only, but it'll be on YouTube. Yeah. So if you want to show stuff, feel um, free. And everyone, um, when Carrie's showing stuff, uh, go, go like go to the I'll, YouTube to, to show it. I'll try to explain it to you, but I'm a yeah. visual learner. So um, we're going to see some anatomy if you're watching this. So yeah. I'll, I'll do my um, best to translate to the visuals for you. Yeah. Audio so I'm going to compare to you. These are... Um, not exactly the same, but we're looking from the bottom of the pelvis. Like if, if you're standing up, you're looking from the ground up. So this is a male. This is a female. Um, if you can see them. So the shape is kind of the same. I need another hand. Um, but we kind of both have this triangle shape around the penis and then around the rectum. And then for the females, we have this triangle shape. So we're looking at the muscle there. Mm -hmm. Triangle shape around the vagina and then around the rectum. Those are your pelvic floor muscles. So we call them pelvic floor because they make up the floor of the pelvis. Um, and if we look at this. Clever female, little scientists. Because <laughs> um, people, so I'll tell you, people used to ask me, like, does this have to do with floor exercise, like exercise on the floor? Um, which is a good question, right? Yeah, valid. Um, but if we look at this, like, model of a, um, like a spine and a pelvis, the bony structure, um, at the bottom is just muscles. Like, these are our sits bones, right? Um, and there's really nothing else. So that's why we call it pelvic floor muscles so that's what i'm talking about when we talk about the pelvic floor um but there's a couple differences so obviously women have a vaginal opening and men don't um so that just puts them at more risk anatomically for bladder issues um women also go through pregnancy um which like if they have a vaginal birth, that all gets opened up and sometimes torn or cut um, and surgically repaired. Um, so more risk 
And also women have a lot more hormonal fluctuations, right? So not just their normal menstrual cycle, but then when they go through menopause, that also affects the vaginal tissues. Um, so those are like the two major differences when we look at the visuals. Um, but also there's some anatomical differences inside. So in a um, female, like these are the female parts. Um, so the bladder is below the uterus. So um, it's in that order stacked inside. But in a male, the prostate is below the bladder. The bladder is on top. Mm. And so those anatomical differences sort of um, put more women at risk of bladder issues, pelvic floor issues. Um, there's just more going on. You know, if you look at the base of the female model, like there's another hole, there's more holes in the muscle structure, right? So that just inherently makes it more at risk or weaker or at risk to be weaker. Um, or males, they just have the rectal opening and then everything else is like continuous. So um, those are the anatomical differences that really make women um, more often need pelvic floor therapy than men. Right. Makes sense. And I think that that visual is super helpful. So anyone who missed that, like just go back, you know, we're very early in episode, go to the YouTube <laughs> video of this yeah. and, and just look at the models. Now my, my next uh, line of thinking here is like, okay, we have pelvic floor issues. What are some of these quote unquote issues and what would be, I guess, you know, a symptom would be pain, although that's quite mm -hmm. general. What are some of the conditions that constitute a pelvic floor issue? Yeah. So in the realm of pain, um, I do have patients that have pelvic pain and often it's related to sex. Um, so for women, like with penetration, they have pain. Um, and so usually that means like the muscles around the vagina are tight, mm. right? So normally they relax, they expand. Um, they're meant to do that, right? They're meant for penetration. They're meant for babies to come come out. Um, and that also can happen to men, but it's much less common. Um, but some of my male patients might have um, pain with erection or ejaculation. Um, and again, these muscles are the same and they surround the penis and they go like on the length of the penis. Um, so that's like a common pain thing. Um, but I do, there are some other like pelvic pain issues. Um, so for some of my patients, you know, and I'm relating this back to fitness because I think that's probably your population, right? Um, so some of my patients is sort of like exercise will increase that pain because things are already tight and then we're lifting weights. We're like turning on those muscles. Um, so for those patients, I try to tell them like, you can exercise, but like at the end, we need to like downregulate. We need to stretch. We need to breathe. Um, so that's a common pain one, but a lot of the pain is really more specific to sex, intercourse, penetration, things like that. Um, yeah, but I have had males with pelvic pain with exercise too. So it's not just a female thing. Yeah, um, I mean, it's something that I've definitely like come across in passing. I, I can't recall a client that I've ever had that's like, this was a, an issue or like anything that he or she had like expressed that ended up being that. So 
it hasn't been very common to me, but I've definitely heard in passing people say like, oh, I, I, my pelvic floor is tight. And to me, when they say that, they just like do nothing about it. And so I think they're just like using words that they don't understand. And like, maybe it's true, but maybe it isn't, but they're not doing anything about it. So I'm like, well, what does that mean? Just like, okay, go stretch. Like, I guess I don't like, they're not asking me for advice. They just like throw <laughs> yeah. it off as an offhanded comment. Like, oh, when I, I can't do like, you know, lateral lunges because my pelvic floor is tight. So I'm just going to stretch. I'm like, Okay. Are you, but you're not doing anything about it. So like, what are, what are you calling? You're just, I think you're, people are just making up words and uh, probably a big misunderstanding of what actually it is and wh- why it's tight and how to go about it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's been become kind of a buzzword. Like mm-hmm. I'm yeah. glad people are talking about it, right? And hopefully they're sure. seeking help. But I think, yeah, these things, these terms are out there and people are just saying this and yeah, like, what does that really mean? Um, so it really, there is an anatomical pelvic floor muscle, but these are really like inside layers of muscles they're not something like from a training perspective that you're gonna work on um but yeah like those patients i do tell them like we do general stretches you know like like the adductors the inner thigh muscles they attach they're like the most direct attachment to the pelvic floor um so i have a lot of people do if they have pelvic pain a lot of like stretching of their adductors right just all the muscles that attach to the pelvis right stretching their piriformis their glutes um all of that, their hip flexors, maybe. Um, so that does help. And then, you know, I think a lot of these people, at least what I see in the clinic, like they're kind of like anxious people, really like upregulated if we talk about the nervous system. Um, so they're just like always on the go, right? So it's sort of like they have to get their like nervous system and their demeanor to like calm down because they're always on. Um, so I think that contributes a lot to like pelvic floor pain. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense because it's not, the muscles are not, I mean, they obviously move, but the bones that they attach to don't move. It's not like your bicep, which connects to, you know, your shoulder and your elbow and you can touch it from the outside under your skin. And like, you can clearly and easily like stretch and flex it, but your pelvic floor muscles, like your, your pelvis doesn't like separate. And I mean, I guess it could, but like you can't <laughs> consciously just like do that and separate it and bring it back together and exercise it quote unquote. So the only way to get at it is by going going around it through the other muscles that are attaching to the bones and kind of relaxing the whole structure. But I think this brings up a good point of tension and we're all like sitting a lot and very tense. And I think that a lot of people, I catch myself doing this sometimes, you're sitting a lot. And for some reason, we're just like clenching our glutes, like squeezing our butt for no reason. And it's kind of like this nervous, anxious thing. And maybe when you're really focusing on something and is that, that sitting posture and that anxiousness that just like holding tension in your muscles for no real good reason is that something that contributes to to some of these issues i think it can but i would say like like you said like most of us do that at some point um i think the people that end up with pelvic floor pain it's a higher level of that right it's like um it's more than just oh i I realize i'm clenching my my butt um but i would say like in the pandemic like 2020 when everyone was at home all of a sudden and didn't have good work setups. Um, I had a lot of people with pelvic pain because they were sitting, but that was sort of extreme, right? It's like all of a sudden you're at home, you have this makeshift workstation that you thought was going to be two weeks and then it was a whole year. (laughs) Um, and, and (laughs) yeah, years and we're still there somewhat. Um, but it was sort of like people didn't move at all, right? Like they just, got up, walked to their living room and sat for like 10 or 12 hours. Um, you know, and I think after some months we sort of realized like, okay, this is going to be for a while and we made some adjustments. But, um, I think in that extreme case, it, it, it does contribute to that. But I would say for most people, um, 
just sitting and realizing like you're clenching and stuff um, doesn't usually contribute. It's usually more extreme or there's some other factor, like right. a medical factor, um, something else. Right. Got it. So would you say that there are a lot of people, because it sounds like to me that there are are probably a lot of confounding symptoms that go along with pelvic floor pain and it may be disguised as something else or not understood like when people are feeling the symptoms whatever those might be they're not under they're not understanding what they're feeling and so they might think oh like my hip hurts or my my glutes hurt or my stomach hurts or something like that is that a common thing that you find and then eventually through process of elimination or finding someone who's good at what they do like you or their doctor or whoever then they can realize, oh, this is like a pelvic floor issue and I can seek the correct help. I don't know if that's kind of a long-winded question, but does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And I think, yes, um, it can be. And I kind of like we touched on before, like all the things around it contribute it to it, right? So it's not like your pelvic floor is tight in isolation. Right. It's sort of like probably everything around it. Um, so I think a lot of those people can get better with general help from a trainer or a physical therapist, you know, to work on those things. Um, but I would say like my patients that have pelvic pain, it's like, it is very specific. So yeah, it's like pain with. So you would know right away is kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most people it's, it's very specific. It's not general hip pain, but I would say if they have pelvic floor pain, they probably have hip and back pain too. Understood. Um, but they would, but they would have that pelvic, like I've, you know, you know, have hip pain and tight hips and these things have happened, but I've never had that. I've never had a feeling that feels like it's in my pelvis that I imagine my in, internally in my brain, I'm imagining what it would feel like and it would feel very unique yeah. and not like a, like, like a regular muscle tightness or muscle strain or muscle, whatever injury. It would just, it would just feel so strange that it kind of feel like, Oh, this is different. This is not a yeah. regular thing. <laughs> I yeah, might exactly. also have something else, but like, this is, this part is different. Yeah. Like a lot of men tell me it feels like I'm sitting on a golf ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it is a very unique feeling and it's very specific and it's pretty disturbing. And that's why people seek help. Cause I'm like, nobody wants to come to pelvic floor therapy and have their pelvis worked on. Right. Um, it's also very non-sexual. Like I think some people think <laughs> pelvic floor therapy, like, you know, I have a lot of friends that make fun of me and I'm like, it's like the least sexual thing you could do. You know, um, <laughs> Even though sometimes we're working to like have better sex, but um, it's, it's very clinical. Um, but yeah, it's very specific. So people are really like, it bothers them. So that's why they're looking for help. And, and right. a lot of my patients, they're like, um, a lot of, it's interesting. A lot of the males find it on Reddit <laughs> and a lot of females find it on like the internet or social media. Um, I think just sort of like where we spend our time. Um, but it is, it's really disturbing to them. It's really like, uh, affects every part of their life. So, um, yeah, it's not a general, hip or back pain. Um, on occasion, I've had a few patients who are like, I have this back pain and I, yeah, I went, I worked with my trainer, I went to physical therapy and it wasn't that. And for those specific people, it probably is pelvic floor um, because sometimes we'll touch a part of the pelvic floor muscle and it's like, oh, that's my back pain or oh, mm. that's my hip pain. Um, but those are the exceptions. Most people, it's a very specific sensation. Yeah, that sounds like it would be unbelievably uncomfortable and something that yeah. as soon as it started, you'd be like, yep, I need to see someone today. <laughs> not yeah. not yeah. like, oh, I'm just going to like, you know, tough this one out. Like that's not a tough it out kind of ordeal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. For this kind of pelvic pain, it is. So what does some of the therapy look like? I got to imagine there's some amount of 
manual therapy involved plus stretching and exercising and breathing is probably a big part. Maybe we can kind of cycle through those things, uh, you know, down the chain as far as, you know, however you go about treating, but what does therapy look like? Yeah. So that's a good question um, because this is a very foreign thing to a lot of people. <laughs> um, so I tell people I'll explain everything and then I tell them like, you can choose to do it or not do it. So, um, if people are comfortable with it, we'll do, I'll do a pelvic exam. So for women, that's internally, vaginally. And because these muscles are really felt inside, right? Cause these are your, your sits bones. So like we're at that level, like your glutes are layers and layers out right. here. Um, so they're really like one or two knuckles deep inside. So I tell my female patients, like it's similar to going to the OBGYN, but they're bypassing the muscle layer they're just looking at your cervix and your uterus um but really just inside i want to feel the muscles to feel like is there any tension tightness tender points um is like can you do a kegel and so that's important i think kegels are over prescribed but um it is important in some cases um we'll we'll come back to that yeah (laughs) um so yeah i want to feel like can you do a kegel but i'm also looking for quality of muscle versus just can you do a kegel so like do your muscles turn on when we want do they turn off when we want how yes how strong is it but also like do they turn on and off when we want or does it get stuck on or do you not even know how to activate that muscle which is definitely common with people that come for physical therapy because they have a problem um but i also tell people like these muscles just most of our life just do their job and we don't have to think about them. Right. Right. Um, so it is hard to know, like, am I doing a Kegel? Right. Um, but I would say if you don't have dysfunction, like you should be able to activate those muscles. Like, you know, I can just do it while I'm sitting here because, but this is what I do every day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, but there's two things that make it hard. Like, Number one, those muscles are just automatic, and most of the muscle fibers are automatic. They're part of our autonomic nervous system, but we do have volitional control over them, so we can work on them. Um, and number two, they're hard to work on because there's nothing to see, right? Like, kind of like you hit, touched on earlier, like your biceps or your legs, right? Like, you can, you can see the movement, you can see the muscle, but there's right. nothing to see, really. Like, there is, they do move a little bit, but not a lot. Not as much as bending your arm or exactly your arm. like yeah. you can just like see Split yourself your doing apart, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I do Thank- like. Thankfully, to- you can't do. That. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like the pelvis is a very strong structure, which is yeah. good. We need that. Um, except in pregnancy, we could talk about that. How yeah. that sort of shifts. Um, but yeah, so I do a manual exam, and then I do something called biofeedback. And for a lot of younger pelvic floor therapists, I don't know why they're very anti-biofeedback. Um, I think it's because I've been in this field for 17 years, so I've seen some trends, right? Mm-hmm. If you've been in any field long enough. Yeah. Um, I think when I entered the field, it was uh, pretty young. Um, and that's kind of all we did with people. We hooked them up to this biofeedback, which... I should have brought it, but I could show you. But um, it's these sensors. I use these sensors that go on the, the muscle. Um, they go on the skin. So they're picking up the muscle from the outside. And they show on a little screen, like, the muscle activity. Um, so it kind of becomes our visual. And I find it really helpful. My patients find it really helpful so we can see. You can sort of see. That becomes your eyes of what's, what the muscles are doing. So you can right. see, like, how strong are you? And are you relaxing? There's, like, some benchmark numbers. Um so I do that. And then I, I kind of look at people globally too. Like I look a lot at like 
spinal and hip mobility and flexibility, um, and then strength, you know, I'll test in physical therapy. We do something called manual muscle testing. It doesn't, it doesn't really have like, um, it's not really standardized. There's a standard, but the, it's, it's pretty subjective. Yeah. Um, and but it's, it's relative, right? It's like, you know, flex your right arm and then flex your left arm. Are they the same? That's how it is. Right. And it has yeah. valid like clinical tools, but it's not, a sta- I, I get it. Yeah. So I use it. Yeah. I use it in that sense. Like, oh, this one really works and this one doesn't. Or I'm looking for like, oh, does this t- um, resistance like create pain, right? Or reduce right. your symptoms. But I also like to test people functionally too. Like, can, what does your squat look like? Can you do a single leg squat? And is that different side to side, right? Um, because in the big picture, if there's imbalances in these muscles, like our bigger muscles, then that's going to affect our pelvic floor, right? So if like, I could do a single leg squat on my left leg, but my right leg, I'm all over the place. And then I have pelvic pain inside. Um, so a lot of times what happens in those small pelvic floor muscles, like I tell people, these are small, tiny muscles. These are not your big stabilizing muscles. They are part of your core. Um, but if our big hip muscles, let's say, are not doing their job, then sometimes our pelvic floor muscles get tight because they're trying to do the job of the bigger muscles. So sometimes even with pelvic pain, I'm like, we need to strengthen your hips um, and we need to get this muscle better balanced and that will take the pressure off the inside smaller muscles um, because that's not their job. But if a bigger muscle is dysfunctional, then sometimes, you know, our body's smart. It's going to like figure out a way to do things. Yeah, um, totally. Th- th- this comes up in a lot of different types of injuries that where sometimes tightness is actually, or sorry, weakness is masked as tightness. You know, your hamstrings feel tight or your hip flex, probably most common in the hip flexors, right? Whereas people like, oh, my hip flexors are so tight and maybe they feel that way, but they're also probably extremely weak from being constantly shortened and not really work because you're not sprinting or climbing or using them in any like real way. And then when you start to strengthen them, then all of a sudden they feel looser and like that pain or that tightness feeling is, is alleviated. But like you said, you know, the body is very smart at uh, protecting ourselves from hurting ourselves further and or, you know, reorganizing movement to make it happen in whatever the most efficient way is at that moment, but doesn't mean that it's overall the most efficient way to do it because we typically don't move correctly. Yeah, exactly. We're going to get it done even if we're not using the optimal muscles. Right. <laughs> right. So are there any, um, like other modalities, uh, like, or maybe this is a better question. Actually, why do the the new school people not like the biofeedback? Like, what's the what's the holdup? It seems like a it's an EMG. It yeah. seems fine. It probably doesn't tell you everything, but it tells you something. And like, why would why would you not like that? It takes two seconds. Not invasive. Yeah, and I really think it goes back to when pelvic floor therapy was like a new thing. Um, that and that's sort of like the first training you take is like how to treat bladder leakage and consonants and you just do these exercises with biofeedback. And so that's like what pelvic floor therapy used to be. It's just a whole session of working the pelvic floor muscles. So I think sort of the younger therapists are like, no, we got to look globally, which yes, absolutely. I agree with, um, or they just use manual techniques. Um, so I, I think some of them, they're just feeling the muscle as they're like, feeling the people do kegels or whatever. Um, and to me, that feels like invasive. And like, if we could do this in a, like a, a little more comfortable way, um, that's why I use it. And then it, my patients actually really like it because they can see what's happening. Right. Um, 
you know, and I think that's really helpful for people, especially people who aren't really in tune with their body. <laughs> um, you know, some of my patients are really athletic, they're really in tune, um, and some of them have no idea. So if you don't know how to, like, move your body in general, like, there's no way you're going to know how to, like, work pelvic floor muscles that you can't see. So I think it comes back to that is like that used to be the whole treatment. Um, But to me, it's like a piece of the treatment, right? So it's an assessment tool. And then it sort of tells me like, do we need to work on something with this? Or is this not the issue? We got to work on something else. So um, to me, it's a really effective um, tool to use. And and I think that's the thing is like, it's just, this is should be a piece of the testing and treatment, not like the whole thing. thing. Um, Because yeah, you've got to, to me, for any physical therapy injury, we've got to reintegrate that back into what you want to do. Makes Um, sense. Makes sense to me. I mean, there's so many things, like there's so many tools and I think people get caught up on like, well, is this the whole thing or is this just one tool? And just because I use this tool doesn't mean I don't use other things or I ignore other things. Like we can hold two ideas or two concepts or two modalities in our head at the same time. And if, if one of those things, maybe that biofeedback, like for whatever reason, really doesn't work with one patient, but the next patient, they really respond to manual therapy and another patient really responds to uh you know verbal cueing or whatever it is like everyone is different and this is like you know most of the job of the coach or therapist or practitioner is like figuring out how to apply the things you know to that to that patient i remember like this was a while ago when i was like uh, a much younger not that i'm very old but a much younger <laughs> trainer like very early in my training career i was doing squats with um this one female client and uh, I was telling her to squeeze her quads on the way up. And I, she kept like not doing it. And I kept saying it, like thinking, you know, this is, you know, young, new trainer, like dumb. Just like if I say it enough times, she'll figure <laughs> it out. And then she kind of stopped and looked at me. She's like, you keep saying squeeze my quads. I don't know how to do that. And I was like, huh, interesting. Like, all right, let's see. And I like said, okay, stop. Like put the weight down, like, like try it. She's like, nothing's happening. Like quads not moving at all. Like, okay, we spent the rest of the session, like sitting on the floor, like, okay, squeeze the quad and like tried a bunch of like visual and tactile cues. And eventually she got it. But that seems like, you know, to me as a young trainer, seemed like a very ridiculous thing. How could someone not know how to do this? You know, I'm whatever, 19 years old. How could someone not know how to do this? This is, this is crazy. But of course, you know, she didn't, she didn't know how to do it. And we have to teach people how to, how to do these things because using your body is actually quite difficult. And probably like, you know, again, flexing the biceps is the easiest one. But a lot of the rest of the body, we don't have very good control and gaining that control is really half the battle and probably goes into a lot of, again, what you do obviously is learning how to control your body and and utilize it correctly. Uh, but that is a very difficult, a very difficult task. So aside from like the, the tactile cueing, the biofeedback, what exercises or, or if there are any exercises that are maybe, you know, things that people might be able to understand, uh, do you do or, or think that would be a good idea for people to do to start to understand how to use their their pelvic floor muscles and and stuff like that and control themselves yeah so yeah like i i think the best cue for a lot of especially women is sort of like hold back your urine like squeeze so like you're gonna not pee yourself right? right um for men often the um a better cue is sort of like um Oh, what do they call it? But I tell them like lift up the tip of the penis. Like that helps them <laughs> activate. <laughs> um, I've learned over time. It took me some practice with men because <laughs> the anatomy is a little bit different, right? right? So for women, they're like, oh yeah, I know how to like squeeze so I don't pee myself, right? Um, but I think for men, that's like not so much a thing. Um, 
but sort of telling them to like lift up the tip of the penis like that usually works or sometimes for men um what do they say like nuts to the guts like squeeze your <laughs> nuts up um so those are usually the cues that work for men but that's your pelvic floor so i think a lot of people that don't know how to work their pelvic floor they end up squeezing their glutes right like they're like, okay, I'm right. just squeezing my glutes or their inner thighs. Or when I'm assessing a patient, I'm looking at this too. When I'm telling them to squeeze their pelvic floor, um, a lot of times it's abs, it's glutes, it's inner thighs. Sometimes it's even quads, right? Like they're just looking for anything, especially if it's weak, right? Like right. you see that in training, right? If someone's really weak, they're like, I'm going to squeeze everything. Right. Um, and so in therapy, we work on isolating the pelvic floor muscles. But I tell people, like, that's actually not real life. Like, our pelvic floor muscle does not just work in isolation. Like, yes, maybe there's times, like, we need to, like, yeah, like, really squeeze tight so we don't pee ourselves, right, if we make it to the toilet. Um, but in general, our pelvic floor is, is the bottom of our core. So it does work together with our other muscles. Um, so... If you don't have dysfunction, you don't need to work these muscles because they're part of your core. So they're getting worked all the time. Um, and I'll, you know, when I have the biofeedback on people and they like, they're laying down, if they move, it's like, oh, the, like the biofeedback goes off. And I'm like, see your pelvic floor. I mean, it does pick up artifact other muscles, but, um, the pelvic floor automatically engages like, with every step we take, right? right? When we're doing squats, when we're working out. Um, so I think there's this big misconception, like, especially for women, like you got to do kegels for the rest of your life. Um, but no, you don't. And like, and that's sort of my philosophy with anything in physical therapy is like, we should work on it in isolation, but then you should sort of incorporate it into your general workouts or your, your life, you know, like, you know, if you have a shoulder injury, like, you probably don't need to do those shoulder rehab exercises forever. Like hopefully you're going back to the gym and just doing general sh shoulder workouts. Um, you know, maybe there's a few things we got to be mindful of, but to me, the point of physical therapy is like, we don't have to do this forever. We fix the problem, we reintegrate it, and then we're just doing the other thing. So yeah, if you have to do it for forever, then you obviously didn't fix the problem. So like, what's the, what are we, what yeah. are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Can't just be in rehab for forever. Yeah, exactly. So you've met, you've referenced Kegels with like a with a, a heavy asterisk, let's say, <laughs> a, a couple times now. Define what they are for for anyone who might not know what it is, and and tell me about your thoughts on on when people should use them, why they're a little bit overprescribed, and and all the rest. Yeah, so Kegel it was named after like Doctor Kegel or something. Oh. Um, that's why they're called that. Yeah. <laughs> Like, that's how a lot of scientific things get named is yeah. sort of like whoever discovers it, it's named after them. But really, a Kegel is just contracting the pelvic floor muscles. So, um, and it's, it's using those muscles. So, you know, we do a bicep curl, right? Or like a squat or whatever. Like we're using those muscles, a quad set. Um, a Kegel is just squeezing those muscles. So, um, yeah, but kind of like I just said, I think they're overprescribed because, um, really, they should just function normally and we don't need to do them if there's no dysfunction. Um, and the other thing is like, so kind of, we talked a lot about pelvic pain. If you have pelvic pain, your muscles are probably already tight. Um, and so we don't need to tighten a muscle that's already tight. Um, and yeah, so I would say 
pelvic pain is a little bit different than sort of the example you used of hip flexors. So it is true. A lot of muscles are tight because they're weak. Um, and that can be true in the pelvic floor, but we sort of need to like calm the muscles down, um, soften them. And then we see like, are they working normally or do we need to then strengthen? But, um, so I would say tightness does cause weakness, but again, the pelvic floor is a little bit different because it's much more part of our autonomic nervous right. system than our like general skeletal muscles that we volitionally exercise. Um, so yeah, anyone that has pelvic pain, it's like, don't do kegels um, because things are probably already too tight. Um, but another caveat to that is I would say sometimes if people do have pelvic pain, I use kegels sort of in reverse because if something's tight, it's hard to just tell your muscle to relax, right? Mm -hmm. So they sort of, in um, a lot of like meditation stuff, right? They have like progressive relaxation exercises, sort of you go through your whole body, like tense it up, relax it, right? So I kind of use Kegels in that way for some of my patients. Um, but otherwise, like if you don't have dysfunction, I don't think you need to do Kegels because those muscles should be regularly activating with normal movement. Right. I guess so... To summarize that, and from you know what I'm hearing from you is that a lot of the misconception with Kegels is that pelvic pain, pelvic pain, or pelvic floor issues, as is an umbrella term, mm -hmm. means do Kegels, and that is mm -hmm. incorrect. Like it's again, it's another tool, and it could be useful. It it is often useful in many scenarios, but not always, and not all the time, and not for forever. Yes, that is good. That's a good reminder for me because I'm sort of in this in the bubble. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's like what people hear like, oh, you have pelvic floor dysfunction, you need to do Kegels for anything. Yeah, like if you have bladder leakage, if you have pelvic pain, it's like Kegels are the thing. Um, but really, like, obviously, this is my specific training is that Kegels are not the only thing. <laughs> right. They are. Right. Yeah, they are a tool. But they're not they're not for everyone. And they're not the only thing. And they're not forever. I think that that the the flex and relax or you know this dichotomy of things is really helpful to understand how to do something that you don't f you can't feel like you're doing you know like the opposite of the only way to understand what light is and just understand dark fast and slow like all these things that are that are opposites of each other right you can't really understand one without without the other and sometimes relaxation is that thing as well like muscular relaxation is like okay it feels tense and I'm I know you're saying the words relax, but I can't do that. I'm obviously trying to. And, you know, again, you know, 19 year old me, like, hey, you said do this. I fucking heard you. I'm trying. It's not working. But sometimes, you know, like you flex it. And it's like, okay, that's what more tension feels like. So then understanding that is helpful to understand. Well, the opposite of that is what I'm trying to do. And then so you can get into the relaxing. And I think that, you know, what I want to kind of get into now is the breathwork aspect of this because breathing and is very related to your nervous system. This is, you know, listeners of the podcast know this. We've talked about this all the time. Our mutual friend, Phil, we had a great conversation about this on the podcast, but um, how does breathwork, how is it involved in pelvic floor therapy? Yeah. So yeah, number one, it just sort of, if we get into like that deep breathing state, then it relaxes our whole nervous system. So a lot of times people that have pelvic pain or tension, like everything's tight, right? So if we can sort of get them to get out of that state, that will help number one. But also, I, I wish I had a picture of the whole thorax, but when sort of the, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor sort of um, are parallel. Mm -hmm. And so when we breathe, you know, the 
the pelvic floor can relax as we breathe and expand. Um, so again, some people who are really tense, really tight, or just not really in tune with their body, it's kind of a hard concept, right? To get them to actually breathe into their diaphragm, breathe into their abdomen and not just like up here, right? Where I'm just like taking these shallow breaths. But if they can get to that, then the pelvic floor is going to actually like, um, lengthen a little bit with those big breaths with, through the diaphragm. Um, so that's, so it's kind of two, twofold. So the nervous system, but then there is actually a lengthening and a like movement of the pelvic floor with those nice deep breaths. Yeah, breathing is is also a mechanical exercise, which people often forget or don't realize maybe that there is like a muscular component to breathing and you can utilize that to your advantage and in scenarios exactly like this. Do you have any favorite breathwork protocols or kind of go-tos that you use for yourself or, or patients? I mean, obviously it's going to depend on the person in like a, in a prescription basis, but any general recommendations for people? Um, I mean, I really try to get people to lay down and relax. And like, I often have people put a hand on their chest and then a hand on their abdomen. And then I'm looking for like, if you're laying down and this is the chest and this is the abdomen, like, are they moving equally? Or can we get more into the abdomen? Um, you know, I think that feedback really helps people that like aren't aware of where their breath is. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'll just, I try to just have them put their hands on it. And then I'm like, I try to ask them, like, do you notice anything? And then, you know, are you move, are you breathing more into one hand or the other? And then can you reverse that? And if people have never like used their diaphragm and breathed into their belly, a lot of times then they're like pushing air. Um, so we got to kind of like work on that. Um, so those are kind of like my go-to techniques. And then it comes down to individual. <laughs> Everyone's different. And I kind of find with some of my people who are really um, in the internet, they're doing a lot of research, they or they're on social media a lot, they kind of have the opposite problem. Like everyone has their nuanced way of teaching this, right? Sort of like belly breathing. No, you have to breathe laterally, like the ribs, like 360 breathing, right? And it's very confusing to people who are like, reading a lot or watching a lot of videos. Um, and so those people, it becomes actually more forced yeah. and we have to sort of come back and find some different ways to do it. Um, and so I often start on the back, but I actually recently took a class and they talked about for those people who are really tense, having them sort of like leaning over, like standing up, leaning over something and trying to like relax their belly there. Um, because a lot of people that have pelvic pain, pelvic muscle tension, they hold their abdomen's really tight, right? They don't breathe through there. Everything's like just on all the time. Um, so it goes back to, yeah, like just working with humans, everyone's different and you got to figure out what cues, what position, what technique works for them. Um, but I find a lot of times if people can like be their own biofeedback, right? Like biofeedback is just body feedback. It doesn't, not a machine. That's one form of biofeedback I use, but like their own feedback of using their hands, I think really helps people to um, kind of feel what their body is doing. 
I agree. And it comes back to a lot of that control that we've been talking about this whole time of your whole body. Can you breathe into your belly? Can you breathe into your shoulders? Can you breathe into your chest? Can you, can you inhale? Can you hold it for a little bit longer? Can you slowly exhale? Like, can you do all these things? And okay, now we've got that control piece down. Like we can, we can mix and match all the protocols and you want to argue over, uh, you know, breathe into the, the, the ninth rib or the, this rib or the, whatever, this degree angle, hold the breath for four seconds or seven seconds. Like that is all secondary and like matters, but not that much kind of thing. Yes. Agree. <laughs> so something we mentioned earlier, and I kind of want to switch gears into talking to about, not because it's personally interesting in my own personal life, but because I'm sure there are people listening to this who will kick me if I don't ask you and, and, and talk about this. But what are the considerations uh, with pelvic floor, not even therapy, just pelvic floor at all in regards to pregnancy? If someone is planning to become pregnant, are there things that they should be preemptively doing uh, either, you know, before pregnancy or during the pregnancy and after there's obviously women, we'll talk about that second, but is there anything that people should be considering before or during pregnancy in regards to their pelvic floor? Yes. Good question. Because that's a lot of my population that I see. Um, So in general, I tell people, if you want to become pregnant, you should start strength training before pregnancy. Um, because one thing I see is people come in, especially if they've never worked out. And then as they're growing in their second and third trimester, their back hurts, their hip hurts. And it's like, so hormonally what's happening is like our pelvis is normally a very like strong structure, but the hormones are starting to make that relax. And for some people that happens way sooner in pregnancy and some people don't, but again, our body has sort of these backup systems. So, um, our bony structure is like the number one and then our ligaments are number two and then muscles. So the ligaments start to relax due to hormones. And so if you don't have strong muscles to like stabilize your pelvis, then you're going to, not to say everyone, but you're more likely to have a lot more pain in your pregnancy. So I always think like I should start a pre-pregnancy strengthening program. Um, so I really encourage people, if you've never exercised and you are thinking about getting pregnant, start training and find a trainer who knows. So a lot of like glute strengthening, hip strengthening, um, because again, there's postural changes and that puts more pressure on your back, on your hips, on your pelvis. Um, so strength train. <laughs> um, and that also sort of keeps the pressure off the pelvic floor. Um, so in pregnancy, I really encourage everyone, if you have access, see a pelvic floor therapist during pregnancy to assess your pelvic floor, all the things that we talked about. Um, and we can sort of optimize you for birth. Um, so do you know how to push, which is another thing we didn't even talk about, but, um, a birth, like really your uterine contractions are what pushes the baby out, but, um, are your pelvic floor muscles going with that or are they contracting? Right. So I tell people like, um, it's a normal reaction when something hurts, we tighten. We got to sort of like overcome that in pregnancy. And I think again, the hormones and the, the physiological process helps that. Um, but it's also like a, push, if, like a push and a relax at the same time. Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah, like normally a Kegel, right? A tightening, a contraction of the muscle we, we pull up and in, but, um, 
you can also push out. So sort of like when you're pooping, things push out. So kind of right. same concept. Um, so I, we go over that. We test that. We train that. And also like I look for in pregnancy, like, do you have any muscle tightness? Because we want to work on that so that those muscles can soften, stretch, expand, right? If there's tightness, it's more likely that's going to tear. You're going to need stitches, right? All the things that come afterwards. Um, also that can slow your labor down. So, a lot of like, especially dancers, gymnasts, people like that, um, who are taught like everything, like hold everything in, right? Like that's their whole mm. life. Like you got to look beautiful and like hold everything in together. Um, sometimes they really struggle in when it comes to childbirth because they don't know how to relax. <laughs> um, so we can train those things. We can work on those things. So I encourage everyone, if you have access, see a pelvic floor therapist, um, hopefully in your second or early third trimester, even if you don't have any issues, um, because we can proactively work on those things. And in the U.S., our healthcare system is not proactive, but you can <laughs> choose to pay and do that and it, it can really help you after birth um, with the birth right and and hopefully avoid c-section but c-section is sometimes medically necessary so i always say that's sort of probably a medical thing but sometimes like your your dilation your labor can't progress if everything's really tight um so seeing a pelvic floor therapist we can work on that to help your labor hopefully be as good as possible um we also there's something called perineum stretching it's basically like perineum is this part between the vagina and the rectum um and so we, we kind of stretch these tissues um because this is where things are going to open up right like mm. there's bony structure on the top but this is where things are going to open up and if there's tearing it's probably in that area so um, just to sorry just to interrupt mm -hmm. you quickly for anyone who's just listening visually yeah. the 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 model that Carrie's holding up, you can very clearly see that at that point that she's talking about, there's the most width. So there's the most, like the widest part of, of where the muscle is. So there's more room for it to stretch. And that's kind of what she's more referring to there with the, the stretching of that. Yes. Sorry. I'm a very visual person. It's okay. I know this is You're audio. doing great. This is, this is my job is to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we teach them that. And then, you know, like, yes, we, we test Kegels, but we teach stretching. And then also I tell people like, you don't have to live with back pain or hip pain during pregnancy. Like physical therapy can address that. Um, or your trainer maybe, you know, and if people are seeing a trainer, I try to say like, okay, we need to work on this. Like we need to strengthen this. We need to stretch this, um, and give them specific exercises. And then I think also people t think like, oh, I'm just going to have bladder issues if I'm pregnant or postpartum mm -hmm. because in our healthcare system in the U.S., that's sort of, I think this is kind of worldwide. It's sort of like, this is what happens if you have a baby, but this is what pelvic floor therapy works on. And it's like, no, you shouldn't pee yourself for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> it's not normal. So we can work on that. Um, so did I answer your question about? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot of information there. I mean, it's, I think some of the main takeaways and I've noticed this a little bit through my own personal experience is that like if you plan to become pregnant ever, not in the next like, you know, month or couple yeah. months, but like if you plan to become pregnant ever, you, you would do yourself a huge favor by by starting to, to strength train. And I can say like anecdotally, I mean, we obviously know this through, through many, many anecdotes and through research and whatever, but I've trained several women who have 
become pregnant and like their main reason for training wasn't to become pregnant. They were already training with me. And then through that process after however, whatever, then they got pregnant, their pregnancy was smooth and like, you know, all, all good. And we adjust the training, but it's not like we, st- I've never started training someone who like came to me at three months pregnant and said, Hey, I, I want to start training. I probably wouldn't accept that person as a client. Cause that's a very special situation and not, you know, especially if they haven't been working out previously, but if they've been working out, different story. All that to say is again, summarizing kind of what you were saying is like just general strength training, make your body stronger, looser, more limber, uh, more control is going to make the pregnancy easier, or at least give yourself the best chance for the best pregnancy possible, right? With anything, there's always an element, any number of things can, can go wrong. And, you know, you might do everything right and things still might go wrong or not perfectly or whatever, but you want to do your best to give yourself the best chance to give yourself the easiest, most pain-free, healthiest, safest pregnancy possible. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll give you one tip for trainers. Um, so this is a common thing in pregnancy. So back to my visual. So the, the pelvis is basically one structure, but there is something called the pubic symphysis, sort of in the front of the pubic bone, kind of holding things together. This is normally a very, very strong, stable structure. But sometimes during pregnancy, this sort of becomes loose and like the two halves of the pelvis have a little bit of movement. Um, so for some pregnant clients, if they're getting like crotch pain, sometimes they call it like lightning crotch or they're getting pelvic pain, um, it could be from this. And so often what brings that on is single leg things, split leg things, wide leg exercises. So if you're training someone who's pregnant and they're having a lot of pelvic pain, um, I'm like, that's the time not to do single leg stuff. Um, so I, I have patients occasionally come to me and they're like, all of a sudden I have this pain. I've been training, right? I've been working out. Um, and so that's maybe a time like not do single leg stuff, like cut back on lunges, um, split squats, things like that, and sort of double leg legs together. So we kind of give that more stability. So that is one common thing I see in pregnancy that can help. Yeah, people. that that makes a, a ton of sense. And for anyone, you know, training themselves while pregnant, like pay attention to these things because pain is not normal. Like pain is always an indicator of like, hey, something's going on here. Don't just ignore this. Like you shouldn't do this at any time, but especially while you're pregnant, if you're having pain, especially with exercise, like the, the right answer is not just, you know, bite down on your teeth and suck it up, like figure out what's causing that pain. And so if it's that thing where the pelvis is for lack of a better word and a little bit too extreme, but splitting and like mm-hmm. that, the, the, the different rotation in a, in a, like a split stance exercise, a single leg exercise is causing that pain. Like, yeah, you pay attention to what you're doing and, and maybe <laughs> stop doing that. <laughs> it sounds very simple to say and, and silly, but like, I'm sure, I'm sure you see tons of people who are like, yeah, I just, it hurts, but I keep doing it and it keeps hurting and I can't figure out what's going on. It's like, well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and luckily I've worked with some trainers that are like, you know, why is my patient having, my client having this problem? And then I'm like, oh, this is the thing. This is how you adapt your training. So I think um, a lot of trainers are well-meaning, but they don't, they're not aware of this, right? Unless you right. really work with this population a lot. Um, but if you're a trainer, you're probably going to work with pregnant women at some point or women who have had a baby. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> are there any other considerations that people should uh, just preemptively be aware of or things that they should avoid while pregnant? Um, that's the big one. And then also people talk about not laying on your back. Um, you know, and I, you can lay on your back 
for like short amounts of time, right? So I saw people doing bridges, doing things like that. Um, I think there's also sort of like, oh, you're pregnant, you can never lay on your back, right? Um, but it's like, you can for short times, and your body will tell you if it's uncomfortable. Like, you'll have symptoms, like, so the big red flag would be like lightheadedness. Um, that's like restricting blood flow. That's why they don't want you to lay on your back when you're pregnant, but it's usually later in pregnancy. Um, those are really the only two big ones, you know, like the, the pelvis splitting. Oh, I also should say, um, there's something called diastasis recti, which mm-hmm. is like the abdominal muscle splitting. Um, <clears throat> so what that will look like is sort of like a the middle of the abs sort of poke up like a, tenting or coning or doming they call it um this is gonna happen in pregnancy like everyone who gets pregnant is gonna get some degree of this that's normal but what i tell my clients and trainers is like we don't want to if we're seeing a lot of that when we're doing like abdominal exercises or core workout we want to not do that that means that exercises is now too hard the abdominal muscles can't control it um it's not you're probably not going to make it worse. You know, that was like, diastasis recti was like this big thing for a while. And I feel like it's not such a big thing anymore. Um, but some people who are really into fitness who are on a lot of forums, they'll see this and they're really like freaked out about it. Um, so I think it's, it's scary, something. It's a scary sounding word as well. Yeah. <laughs> and it looks really odd if, if someone has a big, like you'll see it. Yeah. Um, but you're not going to make it worse exercise didn't cause it. The pregnancy is just the adaptation of, and the muscle stretching. Um, but it does mean we need to change what we're doing. Like now that's too hard because during pregnancy, like you should still train the core. It just is going to look different. So maybe you have to do standing or, you know, a different position. Um, and then sort of as pregnancy progresses, I don't love um, things where the belly is down, um, like planks and stuff. Like that's okay for certain amount of pregnancy um and i don't love that early postpartum because i think it's too much on the abdominal muscles um but you can still train it in other ways got to get a little creative sometimes um but don't be scared of it but if you see that just know like we got to adapt makes sense other than the not maybe doing exercises where like belly is down or face down um what are some of the other training considerations Again, all this is like in general, right? You know, yeah. contact someone and like, you know, figure out your own stuff, blah, blah. Yeah. But uh, training considerations for postpartum women. Yeah. So postpartum, I think is, I see way more women postpartum. So <clears throat> kind of like we said, you should strength train before pregnancy. Um, you should strength train first postpartum. So I think postpartum, there's a lot more issues that come up um, depending on how the birth went and how recovery went. So, and again, I think most healthcare is like this in the U.S. It's like, don't do anything until six weeks. And then your doctor says, you could go do whatever. It's not a switch at six weeks. <laughs> um, you can start, you know, depending on your recovery, like your early days and early weeks should be rest, but you can start exercising. And I think, again, in the U.S. healthcare system, it's like, don't do anything but walk. And for some people, if they have a lot of pelvic floor issues, sometimes walking doesn't feel great for them. Um, just being on their feet that long, it feels heavy, it feels weak. Um, so I tell people, like, you should start with bodyweight strength training. Um, and you can start 
three or four weeks postpartum if you want to, um, if you're feeling good. And everyone should start with strength training before they go back to running, jumping, more intense exercise. So mm-hmm. that's really what I work on a lot with um, postpartum is people want to go back to their hip classes to running, right? Like I want to lose the baby weight. Um, but it's going to be a process to lose the baby weight. Like you gain this weight over nine, 10 months. It's not going away in six weeks or three months. Um, yeah. And those things don't really help lose the weight anyways, but that's yeah, you're just for another day. <laughs> yeah. You're just stressing the system. Um, but postpartum. Yeah. So definitely, definitely strength training. Get those. Yes. Get your core back. But I work a lot on hip strengthening, glute strengthening, um, because your pelvis widened during pregnancy, during childbirth, the hormones, like all that stuff. And if you're breastfeeding, um, you're still going to have this hormonal component that's going to keep the weight on. You need a little extra body fat to breastfeed, um, but strength train. And then there's some general guidance. We're starting to do some research in this area, but it's very new. Um, so sort of the general guidelines are like not doing impact exercise, like running, jumping until 12 weeks postpartum. And then there's some testing. I can send this to you. You could post it. Um, there are some guidelines out of Europe of there's some tests you can do to see, like, are you ready to run and jump? So it's like you should be able to walk for 30 minutes and have no pelvic floor symptoms. So this is kind of pelvic floor specific, but you should have no pain, no heaviness, no bladder leakage. Um, and then you should be able to do like 20 reps of like heel raises, bridges, um, squats. And then you should be able to do like, single leg squat, single leg bridge, single leg heel raise. Um, and then you should be able to do like 30 seconds of jumping in place, hopping in place. Um, I feel like most people couldn't do that even before they have a baby. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like quite, quite, the, quite the, the recommendation. I mean, most people should be able to do that, but I, yeah. I, I you know, whatever. Yeah, you probably the average, see this. The average uh, fitness level is quite low. Yeah. So you probably see this. So like, these are like the general strength things you should be able to do to run and jump. And then you put in a pregnancy and whatever happened with birth and recovery. Um, so those, there are guidelines. They're, they're not, we're doing research on them, but they're guidelines. And I use those guidelines um, and sort of so yeah, you should start with strength training, add a little bit of impact, you know, test out single leg because a lot of um, postpartum pelvic floor issues come from that, whether it's bladder leakage or pelvic pain is sort of like, oh, this one leg is weak. And often this goes back to way before pregnancy, right? Like whatever we had going on in our body just gets exacerbated in pregnancy and postpartum. So we got to work on those little nuanced weaknesses and imbalances we have in our body. And that's going to be the best thing for our pelvic floor, but also give yourself time to recover, to regain your strength and stability before you're really pounding, you know, um, running, jumping is like a huge impact on our, our body. Um, so strength train. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, that, 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 all that recommendation seems very logical and like it makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, you should go back to activity as in again correct me if i'm wrong here you can go back to strength training as soon as you feel comfortable strength mm-hmm. training doesn't mean go in the gym and hit a deadlift pr it means start moving your body in whatever way feels good and comfortable and it's not totally dissimilar from a training perspective of like if someone was injured then when you go back into the gym we don't just like start hammering that part of their body again like we start where they are which is very regressed and then we just like slowly ramp it up using body weight or very light external weights or you know regressions of exercises or whatever the training modality is but like uh, treat it like that where it's like hey you're getting back into this when you're getting back into something you don't start at your maximum effort you start very light very easy 
and you work your way back. Is that, that's all correct to say more or less? Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly like that. And I think people who are working with a trainer one-on-one are going to get that, but it's sort of the people who are like going back to these group fitness classes and there's no individual instruction and they're just like, I'm going to lose the baby weight. I'm going to like go do what I, I used to do. But yeah, hopefully most trainers are considering that and working in that fashion so yeah it's sort of like you went through this thing it wasn't an injury per se but your body went through this process and so yeah we got to sort of start where you are and build up yeah going into a group fitness i've been very (laughs) critical of group fitness classes for a lot of different reasons but going into that postpartum seems like close to the worst idea that you could have I, I, I mean, there's definitely, there's, there's definitely dumber things you could do that would like, certainly <laughs> cause you an injury, but like, that's gotta be, it's gotta be up there. Like I, there's no specificity, no control. You already don't know what you're doing. That's why you're going to a group fitness class. And then they also don't know what you're doing and doing all the wrong things at the wrong intensity. It's just, it seems like a recipe for disaster, but yeah. I'll, and also I'll put I would myself say, saying that, you know? Yeah. But also <laughs> say there's a lot of group fitness classes for moms, which is great, but they're generally not trained in the early postpartum. Like, you know, it's sort of like you're just going back to their group fitness. Like, yes, it's for moms, but it's not necessarily for the early days. Like, right. They right. might scale it, but what I've seen, and hopefully they don't call me out, but I, have, I, have, I work with a lot of like group fitness moms, fitness groups, and I, I, there's definitely a place for it. But those early days, like, you really got to sort of build up slowly. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, I think that's, I think that's also just a little bit of, marketing misconception right like group fitness for moms is great that is not the same as group fitness specifically for postpartum moms yeah. or immediate yeah. postpartum moms i know some people who are who are in that field who train postpartum women and and they do some group fitness type stuff but it's not like your regular group fit like i would never go to that class cuz i'm a man and i'm not postpartum and a woman who's not postpartum also wouldn't go to that class because it's not for her it's for specifically postpartum women and that would be like a obviously a fine group exercise thing to go to but yeah. we're talking your regular like your f45 orange theory you know rah 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 cheerleader do as much as you can in as little time as possible that's that's not the thing for you yes (laughs) honestly outside of all this it's not the thing for most people but again conversation for for another day agree it keeps us physical therapists in business (laughs) (laughs) this is true this is true uh carrie this has been awesome um is there anything that you think that we've missed or that you really wanted to say again uh, no understanding my lack of knowledge and line of questioning in this entire topic. I feel like we've covered a lot. I personally have learned a ton, but is there anything else that you think that we really need to talk about before we close it off? I mean, I could talk for two more hours, but I would also (laughs) say, um, you know, if you're working with women at any age and a lot of training clients are women, I think have an awareness and, and kind of come up with your own way to ask them, do they have bladder leakage? Do they have pelvic pain? Have they had a pregnancy? Like even women like 20, 30 years later, like this sort of affects them or are they in menopause? There's, um, you know, so we didn't talk a lot about bladder leakage, but that's really common with, um, training. Um, so sort of like, again, making sure they're breathing, not holding their breath is my like number one go-to strategy. But, you know, I think, um, if you can make a way to that, you obviously have to not feel awkward to ask these questions. <laughs> um, but uh, if you can add it to your intake forms or whatever, um, you know, I think women really want to be understood and they want to work out 
And, and often they're told, like, we just have to deal with this, right? Like, maybe I pee when I lift weights, but I'm just going to deal with it because I want to, I want to get stronger. I want to be in shape. Um, so I think if there's a way you can sort of incorporate this into your conversation, like, in whatever small way, um, that feels comfortable to you, I think, uh, your clients will really appreciate that. And, and even just a, a, acknowledging or having awareness, like, have you been through pregnancy? Like, have you been through menopause? You know, like, yeah, but you have to be comfortable with it first because yeah. if you're not comfortable, it's going to make it way more awkward. So, you know, I'd really encourage like fitness professionals out there to um, find a way to in- incorporate this and then connect with, find some pelvic floor therapists in your area and connect with them. We love to talk about this and we want to help the field. You know, we want to help people beyond our doors and we want to help people have good fitness experiences and not quit fitness because of their pelvic floor issues. Totally agreed. I mean, I think that one thing that a lot of clients, I've had this happen you know, many, many times, is like, uh, we're going to tell you something, but it's kind of like a little bit too much information. I'm like, it's actually, first of all, it's not. I've heard some crazy stuff. But second, <laughs> like th- the more information you give me, the better. Like, tell me about how your poops are. Tell me about, you know, the stuff, all the crazy stuff that happens. Like, it, it's important for me to know about that. And to be able to like plan around that, like these things matter and your trainer wants to know this, not because they're specifically interested (laughs) in that thing, but it's because it matters about how we can help you best. And the more information we have, the better job that we can do. Yes. Love that. Amazing. Well, Carrie, thank you very much uh, for your time today. This has been, again, very, very educating for me and I hope for for a lot of other people. Um, Is there anything that you have uh, going on coming up that you want to let people know about and where people can find you and, and all that stuff? We can point them in that direction. Yes, you can find me on social media at Recharge Therapy, so I'm on all the main channels like Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Um, so I try to post vi- videos every day and in- information, like little tips and tricks. Um, obviously, that's not the whole story. It's much much nicer to have a podcast where we can talk about yeah. this in depth. Um, yeah, and I have an online course about bladder leakage, bladder issues. Um, that's sort of like my main online course. Obviously, I do a lot in person. Um, I'm in California, a long ways from you. Um, but yeah, I really encourage people to, if you don't have access to someone, a pelvic floor therapist in your area, like an online consult or an online course can give you some place to start with and can help a lot. Um, not everyone has to be seen and touched in person, but sometimes like we really do. Um, but there are a lot of resources out there. So, um, yeah, or find a trainer who's like, you know, interested in this and like has some information and knowledge. So I want people to get help with these things. Yeah, no, amazing. That that very much comes through. And I agree, the online stuff, even if you can't find someone in person or you're just not sure, it's a great way just to introduce yourself to understand, like me in this conversation. It's like, I almost don't even know what to ask you because I know <laughs> so little about the stuff, you know what I mean? But someone who's like, oh, I feel like I might be having this issue instead of if, you, if it's not convenient or whatever for you to see someone in your area, finding an online course might even just give you enough information to know what to know about, <laughs> to know yeah. what you should further research or look into or ask questions about. So I definitely think... I think it's a, a good um, a good deal, but I'll, I'll link your social media in the in the show notes for this recharge therapy um, on all the places. But um, yeah, Carrie, again, thank you so much for this. Is there any last message that you want to leave the people with here in closing? <laughs> Get help if you need it, and yeah, if you're a fitness professional, like find a pelvic floor therapist or physical therapist. We want 
we want to be interconnected with you because we want to send our people to good trainers too who understand this and have awareness so um it goes both ways so good physical therapist wants to be connected to their community um so reach out and connect with us beautiful awesome thank you very much carrie thank you very much everybody for listening i appreciate each and every one of you as always uh recharge therapy carrie dominic on social media you'll find her the links will be in the show notes that's that go outside uh wait before we get into that make sure you share the podcast rate and review all that stuff blah blah help the show grow go outside be a good person see you next time